Iskan founder Acharya Shila Prabhupada Ki Jai Anantakoti Vaishnava Rinda Ki Jai Nam Acharya Shila Haridas Thakur Ki Jai Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Dwaiti Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gora Bhakta Rinda Ki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gopopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavandam Ki Jai Maturadam Ki Jai Navadweet Mayapuradam Ki Jai Jagannathpuridam Ki Jai Gangamaya Jivunadeva Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhaktarinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutale Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namani. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharani Nivisesa Sinivani Paskachada Sitarani. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utah Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Bitam Stam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvaditam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lavita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya It's October 1st, 2013 in Hilo, Hawaii over Skype. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8. Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikit Saved. Text 37. Apyajinas sa krite hita prabo. Jihasasi swit suridonu jivina. Esham na chanyad bhavata parambujat. Parayanam rajasu yojitam hasam. If Ajya today. Na 
us twum you swakrita self-executed ihita all duties prabho oh my lord jihasasi giving up svit possibly surdha intimate friends anujivana living at the mercy of yesham of whom na nor cha and anyat anyone else bhavataha your para ambujat from the lotus feet parayanam dependent rajasu unto the kings yojita engaged in amhasam enmity translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada oh my lord you have executed all duties yourself are you leaving us today though we are completely dependent on your mercy and have no one else to protect us now when all kings are at enmity with us purport the Pandavas are most fortunate because with all good luck they were entirely dependent on the mercy of the Lord in the material world to be dependent on the mercy of someone else is the utmost sign of misfortune <clears throat> but in the case of our transcendental relation with the Lord it is the most fortunate case when we can live completely dependent on him the material disease is due to thinking of becoming independent of everything but the cruel material nature does not allow us to become independent the false attempt to become independent of the stringent laws of nature is known as material advancement of experiential knowledge the whole material world is moving on this false attempt of becoming independent of the laws of nature beginning from Ravana who wanted to prepare a direct staircase to the planets of heaven down to the present age they are trying to overcome the laws of nature they are trying now to approach distant planetary systems by electronic mechanical power but the highest goal of human civilization is to work hard under the guidance of the Lord and become completely dependent on him the highest achievement of perfect civilization is to work with valor but at the same time depend completely on the Lord okay, I'm going to read those two sentences again but the highest goal of human civilization is to work hard under the guidance of the Lord and become completely dependent on him the highest achievement of perfect civilization is to work with valor but at the same time depend completely on the Lord 
The Pandavas were the ideal executors of this standard of civilization. Undoubtedly, they were completely dependent on the goodwill of Lord Sri Krishna, but they were not idle parasites of the Lord. They were all highly qualified, both by personal character and by physical activities. Still, they always looked for the mercy of the Lord, because they knew that every living being is dependent by constitutional position. The perfection of life, therefore, the perfection of life is, therefore, to become dependent on the will of the Lord, instead of becoming falsely independent in the material world. Those who try to become falsely independent of the Lord are called anatta, or without any guardian, whereas those who are completely dependent on the will of the Lord are called sanatta, or those having someone to protect them. Therefore, we must try to be sanata so we can always be protected from the unfavorable condition of material existence. By the deluding power of the external material nature, we forget that the material condition of life is the most undesirable perplexity. The Bhagavad Gita therefore directs us, 719, that after many, many births, one fortunate person becomes aware of the fact that Vasudeva is all in all, and that the best way of leading one's life is to surrender unto him completely. That is a sign of a Mahatma. All the members of the Pandava family were Mahatmas in householder life. Maharaj Yudhisthira was the head of these Mahatmas, and Queen Kunti Devi was the mother. The lessons of the Bhagavad Gita and all the Puranas, specifically the Bhagavad Purana, are therefore inevitably connected with the history of the Pandava Mahatmas. For them, separation of the Lord was just like the separation of a fish from water. Shimati Kunti Devi therefore felt such separation like a thunderbolt, and the whole prayer of the Queen is to try to persuade the Lord to stay with them. After the battle of Kurukshetra, although the inimical kings were killed, their sons and grandsons were still there to deal with the Pandavas. It is not only the Pandavas who are put into the condition of enmity, but all of us are always in such a condition, and the best way of living is to become completely dependent on the will of the Lord and thereby overcome all difficulties of material existence. Oh my Lord, you have executed all duties yourself. Are you leaving us today, though we are completely dependent on your mercy and have no one else to protect us, now when all kings are at enmity with us? Prabhupada says here that the most unfortunate situation, the utmost sign of misfortune, is when we're dependent on the mercy of someone else. So we can think of that in an extreme case would be a slave. So if you're a slave or, or perhaps a prisoner, where you're completely dependent on the mercy of someone else, you have no independence whatsoever to act. Someone else has to feed you, someone else has to house you, someone else tells you what to do. You cannot do anything for yourself. Uh, but even something less extreme than slavery or imprisonment is when we feel very indebted to somebody. Interestingly enough, there was, I was speaking at one point to a manager in ISKCON 
who said, I don't understand it. Why is it that the people for whom I've done the most favors are often the ones who become most inimical to me? I said, I, I noticed that also when I was running a Gurukula, that when there were parents and children who asked me, you know, well, can you make an exception to this rule for me, and can you do this for me, and when I would do it, when I would do a lot of favors for someone, and, and really get, go out of my way for someone, that that person often became very inimical. I mean, not always. It's not that everyone for whom I did a lot of favors became inimical. However, everyone who became inimical was someone for whom I had done a lot of favors. And I was trying to figure out, why is this? And my tentative conclusion is that we don't like to be indebted. We don't like to be dependent on somebody else. We don't like to feel, I owe somebody something. I'm dependent on their mercy. And I think it's because this feeling of debt is very uncomfortable. Generally speaking, if person A loans money to person B, and person B can't pay it back, our sympathies are with person B, not with person A. We tend to feel sympathy for the person who's in debt and not for the lender. You know, the lender is just some evil being. And, you know, the, the, the people who lend money, they're the ones who don't get any sympathy. And if, peop, if, if people don't pay their bills and don't pay back their, what they've lent, uh, nobody thinks it's a really big deal. Like Prabhupada says, from your ordinary debts, you can declare insolvency. I just don't have the ability to pay. And the person who's in debt is always uncomfortable when they think about or see the person to whom they owe something. C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian philosopher, describes this phenomenon very well when he talks about the religious person who's become lax in their practice that once a person becomes lax in their practice, then they become more and more hesitant over time to take up that practice again. And he described the psychology, that what happens is whenever they think about God, they feel so guilty and so embarrassed that they made a, a promise to, to follow something and they haven't done it, that they're in debt, that they want to avoid God more and more, and, and thus the whole situation snowballs. So generally it's like that. The people on whose mercy we're depending are the people who make us feel very uncomfortable. We don't like to be around them. We want to be independent. Prabhupada speaks at length in this purport of the fact that the main material drive is to become independent of the modes of the laws of nature. How can we conquer the laws of nature? He talks about people wanting to go to higher planetary systems by electronic mechanical power. You know, the law of nature is that I'm stuck on this planet. <laughs> you know, let me get out of here. Let me be able to go wherever I want and do whatever I want. And this is our, our general mood. Let me go where I want. Let me do what I want. Let me not have to listen to anybody. Let me not depend on anybody else. Let me get everything by my own power. And that's our, our, our driving desire. You see that in children. The children's driving desire is for this independence. And in all of our modern society, we see like this. But Prabhupada's making the point here that we cannot become independent of the laws of nature. It's just not possible. We're trying to do something impossible. We're too small. That on our own, we are not complete. 
if we imagine we're separated from Krishna, we can't actually be separated from Krishna, but if we imagine we're separated from Krishna, then no, we're, we're not complete. We're not able, in and of ourselves, to provide everything we need. I mean, it, it's something like all the electronic gadgets that we have in our modern world. You know, I have this little a tablet, little Android tablet, and I have a computer, and I have a recording device, and I have speakers, and oh, and I have an e-reader. I think that's about it. So all of those things cannot function completely independently. They're dependent on something else in order to function. Primarily, they're dependent on electricity. So, you know, you can have long battery life. I'm looking for this, for a computer that has long battery life. But it can't have eternal battery life. <laughs> you have to plug it in. Once it's plugged in, in theory, it can keep going and going and going. Of course, eventually it breaks. But if it's unplugged, it has its limits as to what it can do. And it has to get the software from someplace else and the this from something else, etc., etc. It's not independent in and of itself. So we jivas are like that. When we're plugged into Krishna, then we're plugged into a source of unlimited power. And then we can be what's called Atmarama or Optikama. We can be Atmarama, one who takes pleasure in the self, or Atmakama. Aptakama, one who can fulfill all of their own desires. They're not dependent on anyone else to fulfill their desires. And, and Krishna talks about this in the Gita. He says such a person is not dependent on any other living being. But that state is only achieved when we're plugged into the complete whole. Om Purnamada Purnamidam. He's the complete whole. So even if we pull from him, our complete needs, Om Purnamada Purnamidam, Purnat Purnat Udachate, Purnasya Purnamadaya, Purnam Eva Vasishate. Even if we pull from him our complete needs, he's still complete. You know, when I pull electricity from the powerhouse, the powerhouse is depleted that much and has to generate its own electricity more. But if I pull power from the sun, the sun is not diminished. When you put a solar panel on your house and you're pulling your electricity from the sun. It's not the sun becomes any less by giving you electricity. Or if you have a windmill, the wind is not diminished by giving you its power. So Krishna is like that. When we're connected with Krishna, Krishna is not diminished. And then we are complete. And we have everything we need. We have we have full functioning ability to be Atmarama and Aptakama to have all happiness and all desires fulfilled by ourself without the help of any other jiva, uh, without being dependent on material nature. And then one is above the laws of material nature. Then one is above the laws of material nature. If you're connected with the king, then the king is the, the laws are under the king. You know, even in our, our modern life, we don't have kings very much. So let's say you're dealing with a company. Years ago, I was dealing with one airline. They had advertised that you could get a ticket, round-trip ticket to South Asia if you had 40,000 miles on their program. 
So I had 40,000 miles and I wanted to go to India. Actually, I wanted to pay for my daughter to go to India. I wanted to give her a ticket. And India is in South Asia. But when I went on their list, it had India not in South Asia. So I argued with the underlings, with the, you know, you call the customer, customer service line, you know. And excuse me, you advertise that one can get a ticket with 40,000 miles to South Asia. And India is in South Asia. By every definition of South Asia, I looked in Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, Webster's Dictionary, and everybody defined India as being in South Asia. And I said, so, you know, you can't make up your own geography. This was my argument. You know, your airline can't define geography differently than the rest of the world. If you say, you know, you can get a ticket to America and then you define America as only Wyoming. That, that's not very fair. It's deceptive. But the lower level customer service was not able to help me. All they could say is, this is the rule. This is the rule. This is the rule. I'm very sorry. You know, and I'd ask to speak to the supervisor. And the supervisor would say, this is the rule. We can define geography however we want. You know, so I was getting nowhere. And after weeks or maybe months of searching, I was able to find a secret phone number for the top person at the airline. And I called that person, and that person put me in touch with their secretary. And that person gave me a ticket for 40,000 miles. So the point is that when you get to the highest level, uh, they don't just say, this is the rule, this is the rule, this is the rule. At the lower level, just like when you're dealing with the lowest level administrators in the universe, all they can do is apply the laws of karma. They can't change the laws of karma. They can have they have some discretion as to how they apply them. Yamaraj has some discretion as to how the laws of karma are applied, just like even an ordinary judge has some discretion like that. But he can't change the laws of karma. You know, any of the demigods, if you pray to the demigods, uh, they can work within the law. There's some wiggle room within the law. There's room for individual initiative, but they can't change the laws. They can't say, oh, okay, you know, we're just going to let you do whatever you want, which is what the materialists want to do. But Krishna can do that. Krishna can say, okay, we'll change the law. Never mind whatever you owe. Whatever. Whatever you owe, this or that, never mind. Don't, don't worry about it. I'll take care of that. So Krishna has the capacity because he's the top. Mata Paritaram Nanyat. Mata Paritaram Nanyat Kinchirasti Janandaya. There's no true superior to me. I am the Supreme Lord. I'm at the very top, Krishna says. But because he's at the top, he can do that. Because he's complete. He can fulfill all of, and put us in a position where we are apparently fulfilling all of our own desires and have all of our pleasure within, and we're not dependent on anyone's mercy. And because he's at the top, he can provide protection from anything. Anything, even something we brought on ourselves, he can still provide protection. It doesn't matter, even our own sins, even our own foolishness. So this is the irony the irony is if one wants to become completely free of the laws of nature, and if one wants to become completely self-sufficient, you know, we talk about self-sufficiency, but are you going to become 
self-sufficient from the sun and the water and the earth. But if you want to become self-sufficient, Atmarama Aptakama, you can become self-sufficient. We can only do that by connecting with the Supreme. So only by being dependent on the Supreme do we become independent. Do we become free? Of course, we don't want to depend on the Supreme because we think of dependence on the Supreme as dependence on someone in this world. We think of it as the utmost sign of misfortune. I mean, I was thinking about examples of somebody who's dependent on somebody and yet working with valor because Prabhupada really makes that point here that dependency is not being a parasite. I mean, we might think of dependency, first of all, as Prabhupada says, as the utmost misfortune. No, I'm dependent on someone. I, I, don't, I can't have my own autonomy. I don't have my own initiative. Or we may think of dependency on someone as now I just become a parasite, like the, the tiny little baby. So here in the house, we have a very tiny little baby, very, very small, and he's, he's a parasite. He's not giving anything to the family. I mean, we have some happiness when he's smiling and cooing and so forth. But he's not contributing anything to the family. Like here in the family, each of the children have different chores that they do. So they cook the breakfast, so they cook the lunch, they clean up the kitchen, they help sort out the laundry. There's so many things that they're expected to do. But the infant and the two-year-old are not expected to do anything. Right? They, can't, they can't do anything. We were at dinner last night, and the two-year-old is, is asking for some more salad. And his teenage brother says, you know, you have to finish your garunga potatoes first. And then his father says, no, he doesn't have the same rules as everybody else. The two-year-old doesn't have to finish his main uh, meal before he can have He doesn't have to finish his first before he gets seconds on something else and so forth. So we think of it like that. The two-year-old, the infant, they're just parasites. They're just taking food and water and shelter and care, and they're not contributing anything. I, again, they're contributing happiness. Little children bring much happiness to a family. Um, but they're not making any kind of contribution in their way of work. Prabhupada's talking about here, one has to work hard, one has to work with valor. So we have these two misconceptions about dependency. One is that it's degrading, it's, it's unfortunate. It means I lose my freedom. It means I lose my autonomy. I, I lose my sense of self. And the other is that it's, it's entirely passive. You know, you, you just sit and do nothing, and you depend on the mercy of God. Uh, so neither is the case. And I was thinking of some examples. It was interesting, the examples that I could think of they all involved working hard, but they also involved uh, some loss of autonomy in the material platform. So the first one I was thinking of is a student. So when you're a, a young person, a child going to school, you're expected to work hard, expected to work hard at your studies, but you're totally dependent, you're totally taken care of. Your education, when you're a child at least, your education is being paid for by others. Your parents are paying for it, or the government taxation is paying for it, or in the Vedic system, your education was paid for by both government taxation and by begging in your village. So the whole village 
which was another kind of a kind of taxation, you could say, direct. So it was being paid for by others. You're being maintained by others. You're at the house of your teacher or you're at your parents' house and someone else is feeding you. And your amount of responsibility to the society when you're a student is very, very small. You're not expected to make much of a contribution to society. You're preparing to make your contribution to society. And thus you're being fully maintained. I was thinking the housewife is in a similar situation where the, the wife is, is working hard. Certainly she's working hard, uh, but she's dependent on the husband. The husband is maintaining her. The man is feeling that he has the responsibility to provide her with a house, uh, with food, with clothing, with everything that she needs, that she doesn't have to worry about it. I mean, I was thinking in, in my household life, most of the time, uh, really until until right before we took the Prosta. I was not even aware of our finances. I didn't even know what they were. I didn't know how much money we had in the bank. I didn't know what was being done. I just, I didn't, wasn't my concern. Okay, well, that's my husband's business. And, you know, he's taking care of me. I'm supposed to work hard. I'm supposed to do my job, and he's taking care of me. And even the work I did, you know, for the mission, the preaching work I did. Okay, well, my husband's taking care of me, and part of his taking care of me is he's facilitating me do work for the mission. But I didn't feel any sense of responsibility at all to help maintain the the family directly. So I might be main, helping to maintain the family indirectly. And this is, of course, one of the big differences between the woman having Varna and the husband having Varna, that traditionally, although the woman also has Varna and have Varna activities, she does these in, in uh, cooperation with the husband, as an assistant to the husband. Like even Dropadi, who was managing the world treasury and who was overseeing the royal household of 100,000 people, uh, still she was doing this as an assistant to her husbands. She wasn't doing it independently. Or think of it as an employee. When you work for a company, so you're supposed to work hard, you're supposed to work with valor. You're supposed to do your job nicely. And the company then takes care of you. The company provides your salary, provides for your personal needs. The company provides you with vacations. The company provides you with medical care, with, um, you know, then the proper facility to do your work. So they give you both what you need to do your work, whatever tools you need to do your work. If you need, you know, a hammer and a wrench, or if you need a desk and a computer, if you need the use of a car... Whatever, they provide you with whatever tools are necessary for the work itself you're doing, and then they also take care of your own needs so that you can concentrate on the work and you don't have to take care of your own needs. It's not that you work at the job and give everything to the company and then you have to find some other way to feed yourself. Now, this is sometimes, unfortunately, the mood of uh, some Vaishnava organizations where they'll say, okay, you know, we want you to work for the mission for 60, 70 hours a week, but we're not, and we're going to give you the tools you need for your missionary work, but we're not going to provide for your personal care. You're going to have to provide that elsewhere. And, and so sometimes they have that, that mood. Uh, sometimes they won't even provide the tools you need for your work. You know, give, give 60, 70, 80 hours a week to the mission, but you have to provide your own tools for the work, and you have to provide for your own personal care. Uh, so sometimes there's that sort of mentality. But a good employer provides both. A good employer provides everything you need to do your work, 
plus everything you need for your own maintenance so that you just have no anxiety about it at all. My own research is in the field of job satisfaction, and it's interesting that money is not a source of job satisfaction, how much money you're getting paid. As long as you're getting paid enough to live in, in reasonable comfort. So if you're not getting enough to live in reasonable comfort, then you'll be dissatisfied. But getting more money than you need to live in reasonable comfort is not a source of satisfaction. It doesn't have any contribution to job satisfaction. Sometimes money can be connected to job satisfaction if it's a sign of status. But in and of itself, it does not contribute to job satisfaction. Or I think about a soldier. So a soldier also is dedicating everything, certainly working with valor, and the government is taking care of them. The government, again, they provide everything they need for their military action, and they provide everything for the soldier and the soldier's family. If the soldier gets injured, then they provide medical care. If the soldier's killed, then they provide lifetime care for the family and so forth. So all these people, the student, the wife, the employee, the soldier, they're all working with valor, but in a mood of complete dependence that everything I need is being provided for. So all of these are good examples of not being a parasite, but none of these are terribly good examples of having freedom and autonomy. Because the student, the wife, the employee, and the soldier doesn't have autonomy. You know, you think of the soldier, ours is not to question why, ours is but to do or die. You know, into the valley of death rode the, rode the 600. Okay, you know, you're told, go and fight. I always give the example of the Normandy invasion on D-Day where the generals knew, they knew that 70% of the soldiers there were probably going to die. They were going to be left with only 30% of their force at the end of the day. They knew that. They didn't tell the soldiers that. They didn't tell them, by the way, 7 out of 10 of you are probably not going to come out of this battle alive. But I'm sure the soldiers had some idea. I mean, they're walking right into the jaws of Agasura, so to speak. I'm sure they had some idea that most of them weren't going to make it. But that's their duty, and they do it. And they do it. And the employee, you know, the employer may give a, a bad decision. Prabhupada talks about the sutra. The master may ask the sutra to do something that's wrong. But the sutra has to obey, you know, or, or the wife. So the husband may say, you know, okay, I want to move to Tonga. Or, and okay, you know, whatever. Uh, the book we used to pass around in this kind of fascinating womanhood. She talked about how, you know, a woman doesn't want to follow her husband because he might make a mistake. And she says, but it's God who's asking us to obey our husband. She said, so really we're not obeying the husband, we're obeying God. And she said, uh, disobedience is worse than making a mistake. Or the student, you know, the teacher may tell them to waste their time. The teacher may tell them to do busy work or whatever. And they're just they're just helpless. They don't have their own initiative. You know, the other day it, 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 we were preparing to go on a preaching program with some of the kids, and I said, you know, before we go, you've got to get this and this done in the house. You've got to get your chores done at the house before we go. So one of my grandchildren was saying, well, I don't want to do that. And I said, I don't care if you want to do it or not. That's what we're going to do. And she said, why aren't you listening to me? I said, I don't have to listen to you. She said, why do I have to listen to you and you don't have to listen to me? And I said, well, that's how it is, dear. I said, I have to listen to the police officer and the police officer doesn't have to listen to me. And I have to listen to the airline rules, but the airline employees don't have to listen to me. 
So this is the way, you know, for the, the child, the, the wife, the employee, the soldier, we see this as, as Prabhupada says, most unfortunate, utmost sign of misfortune, where we're dependent on the mercy of others. And to the degree to which we're dependent on the mercy of others, we see it as an utmost sign of misfortune. And therefore, we're hesitant to depend on Krishna. I mean, in fact, in our modern society, people are fighting against this material dependence. You know, the women no longer want to depend on their husband. They want to have their own source of income and their own bank account, and they want it to be just less like some sort of a business partnership. Uh, unfortunately, when that happens, the man loses his uh, impetus, his psychological impetus to take care of the wife. You know, and the employees, they, they have their unions and they want to have their own independence and, and so forth and so on. And so there, there's this general idea of, I don't want to depend on the government. I don't want to depend on my employer. I don't want to depend on my husband. I don't want to depend on my parents. You know, more and more children are rebelling against their parents. They speak in a nasty way to their parents. They say, oh, I'm not going to do what you say. And, and certainly like that with teachers, the way that, that the students treat the teachers... So there's this idea of, I don't want to depend on anyone. I want my autonomy. But with Krishna, it's completely different. I mean, even let's look at these material examples. So if a man's a good man, when the wife says to him, my dear, you know, I don't agree with with this thing. I don't agree with this decision, but I'll follow you. Whatever you do, I will follow you. Whether I agree, I want to register that I don't agree. Like Gantari. Gantari said to Dhritarashtra, My dear Dhritarashtra, I don't agree with this war, but I'll follow you. So a good husband in that situation will take into consideration their wife's counsel. They'll say, well, you know, let me do something that will please my wife. And unfortunately, Dhritarashtra didn't do that. And the good employer will also do that when the employee goes to the employer and says, my dear employer, you know, I, I, I think you could be better, we'd be better off if we did it this way. Then the good employer will, will take that into consideration, will listen to that. So Krishna is the best parent, the best husband, the best employer, the best government. And he genuinely cares about pleasing the living entity. He wants to give the living entity full freedom. In fact, Prabhupada talks about also in this first canto how the need of the soul is for freedom. And it's ironic that we get that freedom by total dependence on the mercy of the Lord. We get that freedom by total dependence on the mercy of the Lord. That's where we belong. That's who we are. That's the, the irony. You know, materially, when I depend on someone, I lose the ability to fulfill my own desires. I can only fulfill my own desires with their permission. And they may or may not give that permission, no matter how I behave. But with Krishna, Krishna is eko He's always He wants to fulfill all the desires of the living entity. That's his happiness. See, when I depend on the mercy of someone in this world, they feel that they need me, and they need me to act a certain way for their happiness. Uh, therefore, they, they may or they will exploit me, and they will take away my own freedom, because when I depend on them, they're going to try to use me for their happiness. 
And of course, I'm trying to use them for their happiness. But Krishna doesn't need me for his happiness. He's the ultimate Atmaram and Atvikama. Why would he use me for his own happiness? He has, he has no need to do that. And he has no inclination to do that. Krishna wants me to depend on him because once I depend on him, that I have all facility and all freedom to do whatever I want. Therefore, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says the only rule, he says this in Bhaktiloka, the only rule in the spiritual world is prema and don't envy. If you have love and no envy, you can do whatever you want. Chintamani, Prakrasadmashu, Kalpaviksha, Lakshabhateshu. The ultimate reality is full of wish-fulfilling dust and wish-fulfilling trees. Whatever you want, you can have, and you can have instantly. When we try to separate ourselves from Krishna, we, could, we still get whatever we want, but we have to work for it. It may take many, many lifetimes. And what we want, when we get it, we may say, oh, you know, why did I want this? Why did I want this? They say there's two terrible things in the material world, to not get what you want and to get what you want. And you get what you want and you say, oh, I didn't know what I, what I should have wanted. But when one's realizing their connection with Krishna and actually dependent on Krishna, then one gets whatever one wants and whatever one wants is perfect. But again, that doesn't mean that one is simply, you know, lying in a trance, getting whatever one wants. One is working hard, working with valor. Prabhupada says, working hard and working with valor to please Krishna. Krishna is trying to please the devotee, giving the devotee whatever the devotee wants. And the devotee is trying to please Krishna, giving Krishna whatever they want. But it's on the platform of freedom. It's on the platform of love. Not serving because I am the doer. You know, materially people are working hard thinking, I am the doer. I'm the one who's achieving that, you know, I'm, I want to be independent. But we're working hard out of love. So how does that translate into the everyday life of the aspiring devotee? To work with valor, but under the guidance of Krishna. Probably three parts here. To work hard under the guidance of Krishna and completely dependent on him. So let's take guidance of Krishna first. So that's Sadhu Shastra Guru, that our life has to be within the fence of Sadhu Shastra Guru, under the protection of Sadhu Shastra Guru. So, of course, Sadhu Shastra Guru does not give detailed, explicit instructions for every contingency. As we've said before, reality is not a machine bureaucracy with some humongous rule book for every single possible activity. That's not the way the universe is run. It's principles. We're taking the principles from Sadhu Shastra Guru. Shastra gives the general principles and some, some very specific guidance. Sadhu show how, give an example of how those principles play out in real life. If we want to see, like Prabhupada's giving here the examples of the Pandavas. The Pandavas give an example. Okay, what does this mean to work with valor under the guidance of the Lord and completely dependent on the Lord, Prabhupada says here, as householders. How does a householder live completely dependent on the Lord while working with valor? So you look at the sadhu. Oh, that's how they do it. And then there's guru. Guru says, okay, this is how you do it now, in this time, place, and circumstance. 
because how the Pandavas did things and how we do things in 2013 are going to be just a little bit different. Just like there's an injunction in the Shastra that if a woman approaches a man and says, you know, I want you to marry me and take care of me, he can't refuse, especially the Ksatriya. And this, in fact, happened to Arjuna with Ulupi. But are we going to use that in the present day and age? So if just some woman comes up to you and says, I want to marry you, do you have to marry her? No. So the guru tells us, you know, okay, this way that the sadhus live, uh, that's applicable. And this way is not applicable. So sadhu shastra guru. Shastra for the principles, sadhu for the examples of applying the principles. How does one apply the principles as a house order? How does one apply the principles as a renunciate? And then guru for specific. How do you do it? Just like Prabhupada said, generally the sannyasi should travel and preach, but sometimes he put a sannyasi in charge of a project and says, okay, you stay here and take care of this project. You know, Prabhupada says, generally the husband and wife should live together. He said that the wife should be protected like one's personal money in the wife always stays on the chest of the husband but sometimes he would separate families right? sometimes he would take the husband traveling with him as his personal servant and the wife was staying under the shelter at a temple so there may be some individual instructions for individual persons just like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu so he told Raghunath Bhatta Goswami don't ever get married he told Lord Nityananda you need to go get married Different instructions for different people. That is guru. Uh, you should become a preacher. You should just become a pujari. You know, there, were, there were two devotees who had stopped chanting their 16 rounds. And one of them, Prabhupada said, just chant at least for an hour a day. And the other one, he said, give up everything else and chant at least 64 rounds a day. Uh, so that's guru. So we stay within this shelter of sadhu shastra guru. And then we work hard. We work with valor. We work with valor according to our nature, according to our propensities, according to our tastes. And then whatever happens, happens. Detachment, detached from success or failure, from honor and dishonor, from heat and cold, from life and death, from poverty and wealth, from friends and enemies, Whatever happens, happens, because we're not dependent on those things, on all those fallible soldiers, for our enjoyment. We're dependent on Krishna for our enjoyment. So I get myself under the guidance of Sadhu Shastra Guru. And Prabhupada would say many times, it doesn't really matter what you do. Now, sometimes we're agonizing. Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? It doesn't matter. Work according to your nature and your propensity. And it matters in the sense that we have to be working according to our nature and our propensity and our taste. But it, it doesn't matter in terms of, you know, is the universe going to collapse because I do this thing or that thing? Is Krishna going to be more pleased if I do this thing or that thing? Krishna is going to be most pleased if I use my nature and propensities and my individual taste in his service, working with valor and being detached from the result, depending on him. Whatever result you want to give me, that's fine. However you want this to play out, that's fine. If you want me to be one of the soldiers that dies five minutes into the invasion, okay. If you want me to be one of the soldiers who knocks out the enemy's guns and stands at the top of the hill waving the victory flag, fine. You know, if you want me to be somebody with an unmarked grave, fine. If you want me to be somebody, you know, 
memorialize by a statue in the park, fine, whatever. Now, fame and infamy, victory and defeat, honor and dishonor, friends and enemies, if everybody will love me or if everybody will throw stones at me, whatever. If, you, if I rule the kingdom and I have great wealth and, or if I'm just selling banana leaves, pots by the bank of the Ganges. That's up to you. You, know, you want to take everything away, Marobi, Rakabi, whatever. Because I'm under your shelter, Lord, and you're taking care of me. Even if I'm just selling banana leaf pots on the bank of the Ganges, you're taking care of me. And if I'm the emperor of the world, you're taking care of me. And of course, it plays a lot a little differently according to ashram. So the work with valor that the grahasta does is different from the work with valor that the sannyasi does. The sannyasi's work with valor, Prabhupada says, is to produce literary works and to have learned discourses. The works the grahasta does is going to be according to their varna. How one depends on Krishna is different for the ashrams. You know, the sannyasi doesn't have a personal bank account. The sannyasi isn't, isn't hoarding, or the vanaprastha isn't hoarding, they're brahmachari. They're not hoarding money. They're not having lots of extras and backups. Whereas the grahasta, you know, their dependence on Krishna, they have a house. <laughs> and they have a car or a bullock cart. They may, they're going to have some storage of grains. Prabhupada says 25% of the householder's money has to be kept for emergencies. Prabhupada says the householder gives 50% of their income to the Brahmins and the Vaishnavas, 25% they use for family maintenance, 25% they save for emergencies. The renunciates aren't supposed to save anything for emergencies. So the dependence on Krishna may be a little different. The householder is supposed to, you know, duh, have a house. <laughs> the renunciate's not supposed to have a house. I mean, can be, the Vanaprastha can have a, a hut in the, in the woods and, or visit holy places. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, stayed in the Gambira. So the, the details, you know, we may think, oh, to be dependent on Krishna, I have to live like an avaduta. No, that, that will show up in the different, depending on your ashram, depending on your varna, it will look different. How you're following the guidance of Krishna, how you're working hard doing what? You know, working with valor and working hard doesn't necessarily mean you're shooting an arrow or you're hammering a hammer. And how you're depending on Krishna, you know, do you have a bank account or not? Do you have a storage of grains or not? Do you keep something in reserve or not? You know, that, that depends on your individual situation. That's not the measure of how dependent you are on Krishna. The measure of how dependent you are on Krishna is your equilibrium when things are wonderful and when things are terrible. That's the measure. That's the test of whether or not we're dependent on Krishna. You know, if all of a sudden we get a million dollars, are we rejoicing and celebrating and overcome by, you know, intoxicated with joy? And if we lose a million dollars, are we devastated? You know, that's, the, that's the evidence of how much we're depending on Krishna. So this is the way to our real freedom. This is how to be the most fortunate. I says the most fortunate person is one who's dependent on Krishna. Uh, neither false independence, which, which, which can't happen. You cannot be falsely independent. We will be dependent on maya. We will be dependent on other jivas as soon as I try to become independent of Krishna. 
So not false independence, real freedom, which means total connection with Krishna, under Krishna's guidance, working with valor, and detachment from the result. Trust that whatever Krishna does is good. So questions, comments? Hare Krishna Madhati. Um, what, how do we um, help a person, let's say uh, someone who, a family, that were devotees and, and were initiated, and uh, gradually they stopped associating with devotees, and then gradually they uh, you know, became more and more materialistic. Um, that I know a family that is doing very, very well uh, materially, but they've gradually pushed uh, devotees' association away, and I try to just be friends with them and, uh, you know, to not push them because you were talking about envy before, or, you know, the, um, how people, re- not envy, but how people react to a uh, feeling of guilt, um, making promises and uh, having debt and they begin to... Um, uh, feel worse and worse being they don't want to be around that person they don't want to uh, see them and then um, then they reject so um, anyway with with these devotees uh, how uh, they've now they've come to the point where they don't want to talk to any devotees they won't even answer the phone for me uh, even though I just wanted to be friends but I'm too they re, I remind them too much of Krishna or, or the temple, and so how can we help those? I mean, is there hope, or what can we do? Uh, Obviously, if somebody won't let you in the door, there's not much you can do for them. In fact, one of the offenses is to preach the glories of the Holy Name to the faithless. So one of the principles of preaching as a Majjhima devotee is that one has to deal with different people differently according to their receptivity and not force ourselves on anyone. Krishna consciousness is something, spiritual life is something that's based on freedom. So if somebody is not interested, forcing it on them in some way is a very bad idea. But there's always something that one can do. And in in our Hare Krishna movement, we really emphasize the difference between one jiva and another and between one jiva and God. And we do this because most of the religions and the spiritual paths today are exclusively focusing on the oneness. And many times they're focusing on the oneness in a way that's offensive to say that we are God, that we're our oneness with God means that we're God. But we do also believe in oneness. We do believe that all of us are one. We are one in quality, and we are also all connected. The concept of separation is an illusion. We are connected. We are connected with Krishna, and we are connected with each other. We're all like part of the same body. We have the paramatma, the super soul of all the little souls, You can think of it just like cells in our body. Each cell is an individual soul. But we uh, are like the super soul of the body. But all the cells are connected to one another. So it is entirely possible to pray for someone else, 
and to wish well for someone else. And that wishing well and that praying praying for someone else, you can also offer the results of your activities to that person. The Ekadasi we had yesterday, it's explained that uh, there was one king whose father was suffering after his death, and the king was advised to execute the Ekadasi and offer those results to his departed father. So such things are in the Shastra. You can offer prasadam to a picture of somebody. You can do devotional austerities and offer that benefit to someone. You can uh, chant japa and offer the japa, the benefit of the japa to someone else. Uh, My husband personally heard Srila Prabhupada say that when you pray for someone who's died, your prayers act like witnesses in a courtroom on their behalf. So you can do that. You can pray to Krishna, please uh, give these people a taste for Krishna consciousness. At the very least, by doing those prayers, Krishna will give that person an opportunity. And I have read some incredible stories like this. I, one story I read was of this, this young man who took to a life of crime and didn't care at all about anybody or anything. His his. He kept being arrested and jailed, and then he'd be released, and he'd engage in criminal activities again. And his mother died. Finally, it was just his father. But his father was a religious man, and his father had always prayed for his son. He was always prayed for his son, every day. And one day, the son was in jail, and he had been fighting in jail. He'd been fighting against the wardens, and he'd been put into solitary confinement he was in like the dungeon of the jail alone in a very hellish situation and all of a sudden he had a thought you have so much energy that you're using for evil if you use that same energy for good how wonderful that would be now that wasn't exactly his thought that was super soul and he chose to respond to the super soul favorably and turned his life around and became a minister And he attributes that entirely to the fact that his father was praying for him for so many years. So that prayer gave him an opportunity. Krishna responded to the father's prayer by giving the son an opportunity, a moment of awakening. I mean, another really incredible story is a book called My Descent into Death. It's written by a man who was a confirmed atheist and and a hater of God, absolutely hated God. He was an art professor in a university. And one year, one of his students was a nun. So he told this nun, I don't want any religious pictures in my class. You know, if you're here to learn art, that's fine, but I will not allow you to do any pictures of Jesus or Mary or anything religious. So she went back to the convent where she was staying and she told the other nuns, you know, I've got this professor, he's a good art teacher, but boy, is he a demon. (laughs) You know, he's such an atheist, he won't even let me do religious pictures as part of my assignments. She said, why don't we all pray for him? So all the nuns in the convent every day included this professor in their prayers. So 13 years later, he's traveling with his wife in France when he suddenly becomes very ill. He's put into a French hospital where somehow or other the staff forget about him. And he... His whole body breaks down. Basically, he dies. 
in this hospital with nobody aware that, you know, the machines recorded that his heart stopped and everything, but nobody was there to help him. So he was clinically dead for quite some time and he had an out-of-body experience. And in his out-of-body experience, he was being taken by the Yamadutas to hell. I mean, he describes how he was being dragged to hell and how they were torturing him in, in many ways. It was, you know, it was a horrible, horrible experience. And then he became aware of an instruction. Again, not his own thought. Just one word. Pray. Pray. And, you know, you're out of your body, you're in your subtle body. He's still with the mind. So he's thinking, pray. I've never prayed in my life. I don't even believe in God. I don't know any prayers. And then he heard again the instruction, pray. And so he thought, well, do I know something with God in it? So he started singing patriotic songs with the word God in it, like, God bless America. And as soon as he did that, the Yamadudas and the other demons that were torturing him moved away from him. And he thought, wow, this works. So he started thinking of any song he knew that had the word God in it. And he just started singing them over and over again. And these entities moved further and further away from him. But they were tormenting him all the time. And they were saying, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Don't do that. There is no God. There's no, you know. But he just kept going on and on and on and on. And, and eventually he, he met higher beings and etc. And um, he was, of course, restored in his body. And he also became a, a minister and a preacher. And he, he talked about how that whenever he'd go into any place of worship, like he'd go into a church, he said he could, you know, see, he could see, he said he could see celestial beings in the ceiling of the church, singing along with the people in the church. And he would often experience, like we talk about the Sattvika Bhavas, he would often, after that, experience different symptoms of ecstasy. So one time when he was traveling and, and preaching, at the end of one of his lectures, uh, a nun came up to him and told him, she said, you know, we were praying for you every day. She said, I can't believe it took so long. She said, it was 13 years from the time we started praying for you until you had this experience. So certainly he didn't have that experience on anything with his own merit. He had that experience from the prayers of others. So these, the prayers of others are, are real. And of course, for one who's once been a devotee, Krishna doesn't forget. I mean, these two stories I talked about were people who'd never done anything devotional. In fact, they were, they were criminals and, and atheists. But for someone who's done something devotional, we have the story of a Jamil. So for someone who's done something themselves devotional, Krishna doesn't forget. And he will give that person some opportunity again in the future. But if you want to speed up that opportunity and you want to increase the opportunity, then you can simply pray and remember that we are connected. You can wish that person well. It matters. When you wish someone evil or you wish someone well, it, it makes a difference. It matters. It's, it, it has meaning. It's not a meaningless thing. Because although we're all separate entities, we are also connected. Thank you very much. I don't think I've ever heard that from anyone. Thank you. That was wonderful, Monty. You know, um, if, do you have time for one or two more questions we have coming in? Sure. Okay. Uh, these are, come from actually the class that I gave last night. I kind of did a, a botch-up job on the answers, so 
we need to review these uh, if if you don't mind I one of the questions is uh, as a, the uh, spirit soul being part and parcel of Krishna how is it possible that we fell into this material world how did we get here if we since we're eternal um, how is it possible that uh, we're in a situation that we're in this material world? And the second part of this question. The second part was uh, um, some people understand that uh, these, uh, as a living entity evolves, he comes from the animal bodies or lower than that finally to the human form of life but isn't it uh, this is what they've heard that when you uh, get to the human form of life since you've suffered all the animal species etc that you should come with a clean slate in the human form but yet we see that some are higher some are lower suffering or enjoying more etc those are the two questions that we had from last night waiting to uh, ask you Well, I'm not quite sure why these questions should come to me, and they weren't really related to the class. I, I want to say also a note about praying for others uh, before I go on to those. That my godbrother, Sridhar Maharaj, when he was dying, requested me to research and write about praying for others. And it took me many, many years to do it, but I finally did it. And I wrote an article for Back to Godhead a few years ago about praying for others. So if you want more information on that topic you can refer to the article that I put together. So these, there's two other questions here. I'll try to answer them very briefly. How is it that a soul who's part of God is suffering in the material world? And how is it that human beings who apparently have gone through all the lower species start off at different levels? So the basic, the most simple answer to the first one is that Krishna is a desire-fulfilling tree. And we have a capacity to desire something foolish. If we did not have a capacity to desire something foolish, we would not be a living being. The definition of a living being is that we have the capacity to desire something that is not in our best interest. So Krishna, who fulfills all desires, is willing to create out of his mercy, out of his love, a material world, a world of illusion where desires that cannot be fulfilled in reality. If we, if we say, I have the desire to be God, that cannot be fulfilled in reality, but he is so clever that he can fulfill it in illusion. So we are here because of our responsibility. It's our responsibility entirely, 100%, that we're here. However one explains it, uh, there's different ways of explaining it, and but they don't, it all comes down, however you explain it, it all comes down to the fact that it's our individual desire and it's a desire that's made in knowledge. It's not a desire that's made in ignorance. Then the second question, why do human beings start out? I don't know how you're going to say start out. You know, where's your starting point? So Srila Prabhupada explains that if we're coming up through the animal species, we come through either a, a, a monkey species or a carnivorous cat species or a cow species that if we come through the cow species, we take birth as a human in the mode of goodness. If we come through the tiger-lion species, we take birth as a human being in the mode of passion. If we come through the monkey species, we take birth as a human being in the mode of ignorance. 
So how we come to the human form through the animal species is also dependent on the karma we performed as a human being. So we don't all start off exactly at the same place. Also, it's not absolutely necessary that we go through all the animal species. Prabhupada explains our first material birth is that of Lord Brahma. And then there's no karma, and we gradually... Also, Brahma can immediately go back to Godhead. You could take one birth in the material world as Brahma, and then you could go to the spiritual world, and you don't have to take any other birth. We're not obligated. That's, that's up to us. We were talking about the other day how Daksha gradually fell. So my, my assumption is that some living entities take one birth in the material world as Lord Brahma, and that's it. And they go to the spiritual world, and they never take any other births. Just like some people, they have, you know, I, I smoked half a cigarette in my life, and then I said, that's it, you know, I'm never going to smoke again. I didn't have to go through some addiction program and then, you know, get hypnotized to stop smoking or something. I, I didn't need to do that. I didn't need to go through some austerity to stop smoking because I just tasted it once and said, blech. You know, so some people, they're going to take one drink of beer and go, blech, and that's going to be it, and then they don't take it again. And and other people are going to become um, an alcoholic and have to go through some sort of rehabilitation and some treatment program. So from Lord Brahma, it's a gradual fall down to be a human being, just like the story of Daksha. And one can go to the spiritual world from any of the heavenly planets also. You could fall down from Brahmaloka to, you know, Janaloka to Satyaloka to, uh, I mean, to Swargaloka, and then go back to God, and go to God, and go to the spiritual world. You don't have to take birth on the earth planet. It's not necessary. You know, but for most of us, we can assume that we've been through all the animal species of life, but it's not required. You don't, you don't have to become an amoeba and a tree and a mosquito and, and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's very, very individual extremely individual the only the only entities in this world that are starting off with a clean slate would be the first birth in this world is Brahma or if one goes to the Brahma Jyoti and then again falls down you'd be coming with a clean slate you know, or if you just chant Hare Krishna once Namabas then you're free from all reactions again you're starting with a clean slate We could take one more, yes, that just one, and then I have to do some things. Luciano Prabhu? Oh. Hare Krishna, Ermala Devi, let me just sneak in here real quick. I've um, said that to others before, but I didn't have a scriptural reference, therefore nobody believed me. Can you tell me where... Uh, Srila Prabhupada, did he actually write it that he started out as Lord Brahma? I'm not sure if I can find it on my computer in two seconds, but he said it in two places. Um, if you email me, I can look it up for you. I don't, I don't think I can find it in two seconds. I mean, I can try. I can see. I might. Let me, let me see quickly if I have it here that I can find it immediately. Um, ah, yes, I do. Okay, it's in the purport to 92458. 
Srimad Bhagavatam 9.24.58 purport. Prabhupada says, Both the Lord and the living entity being qualitatively spirit soul have the tendency for peaceful enjoyment, but when the part of the Supreme Personality of Godhead unfortunately wants to enjoy independently without Krishna, he is put into the material world, where he begins his life as Brahma and is gradually degraded to the status of an ant or a worm in stool. Hey, thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.